these two chapters before us today contain one of the most well-known stories in the entire book of Numbers. If you grew up in church or if you grew up uh, attending Sunday school, it's highly likely that you're somewhat familiar with the story of the 12 spies entering into the promised land to scope it out and then bring back a report to the people. And even if you didn't grow up in church, you may well have come across this story in your travels. In fact, I heard from someone recently that if you go on holiday to Israel, or if you go onto the uh, Israeli government's website and you, you click on the Ministry of Tourism, the Ministry of Tourism board in Israel, their huge logo is a gigantic cluster of grapes taken straight uh, from this passage. So this is one of the standout stories in the book of Numbers, but it's not only one of the standout stories, it's one of the most important sections of the book of Numbers. This section marks a key turning point in the narrative because God's people here in chapter 13 find themselves encamped right on the edge of the promised land. And this should have been not just the launching pad for the the mission of the spies, but this should have been the launching pad for all of God's people to enter into Canaan on their conquest to inherit the land that God was giving them. In one sense, Numbers should have been a very short book. It should have ended right here. But tragically, God's people chose to rebel against him in the wilderness, to harden their hearts, to not listen to his voice. And these two chapters explain for us the unfolding events of the rest of the book where God's people, the first generation, wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then fell to their deaths. You know, this is one of the most tragic stories, not just in the book of Numbers, but in the entire Bible. Because God's people, this generation here, they were the ones who'd been born in Egypt. They were the ones who God, by his strong and mighty arm, delivered from slavery and bondage. They were the ones who God safely led through the Red Sea. They were the ones who God brought to the Mount Sinai and there gave them the law. They were the ones who God always protected, abundantly provided for. They were the ones who God was always reassuring them with his presence and with his promises. I am giving you a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet despite experiencing God's salvation... Knowing presence and promises, his provision and protection. Knowing God's proven track record. Unfathomably, God's people chose to rebel against them. It's hardly surprising, is it, that the writers of both the Old Testament and the Psalms and then in the New Testament hold up this story as a cautionary tale for us. Do not make the same mistake as this rebellious generation. Do not harden your hearts. If I was to summarize uh, this passage in a, in a single sentence, it, it's saying to us, as those who have experienced salvation in Christ, are we going to be a people who will go forward in faith, trusting in God and his promises, or are we going to be a people who go backwards in unbelief? Will we go forward in faith 
or will we go backward in unbelief? Now, I just want to work through this, uh, these two chapters uh, using three headings. We'll look at uh, verses 1 through 25 under the heading, 40 days of spying out the land. We'll look at uh, verses 26 into chapter 14 and verse 10 under the heading, the two reports and responses. And then finally, we'll look at verses 11 to 38 of chapter 14 under the heading, the intercession of Moses and the judgment of God. So let's look at the 40 days of spying out the land. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me of chapter 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. This chapter opens with God giving his people a command through Moses. Send men to spy out the land. Now, it's worth pointing out that strictly speaking, these men were not really spies in, in the technical sense of the term. There was no attempt at concealment on their part and in any event, it would be most likely very difficult for such a large group of men to, to hide. So, so this passage opens, God gives the command, send 12 men to go and spy out the land. But it also begins with God reassuring and reminding Moses of his glorious promise. I am giving you this land. Command and promise. And some people can, can hear this open couple of verses and think to themselves, is there not a tension there? God gives them this command, go spy out the land, and God's saying at the same time, I'm giving you this land. Well, of course, there's no tension. Ian Duguid, a, comment, a commentator of in the book of Numbers, puts it well when he says, God's promises never eliminate the need for responsible action. God's promises never eliminate the need for responsible action. So, so when God says in Christ to us, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Does that mean we sit back, do nothing? That means we pray, we go, we disciple, we tell the good news. And we trust that Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. When God says to us that he who's begun a good work in us will see it on to completion, does that mean we just sit back and let, leave everything to God? Of course not. We give ourselves wholeheartedly to God. We grow in holiness. We listen to his voice. We seek to obey him. God's promises never eliminate the need for responsible action. Now, just as we're thinking about these 12 spies and their mission to go into the promised land, it's important to know that they were not going into this land to decide whether or not this land had potential or was desirable for God's people to set up a new home in. No, God said, I'm giving you this land as your new home. And the reason he wanted these men to go in and scope it out was because he wanted them to enter it with their eyes wide open to the realities that lay before them. You see, this is what we've got to, we've got to understand. This generation of God's people had spent their entire existence in Egypt. They had only ever heard stories of the promised land passed down from their fathers and then passed down from their fathers going all the way back to the days of the patriarchs. So God wanted them to have an opportunity to understand all that they were about to be given. 
Actually, interesting, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, it's the parallel account to this account, and in it we're told that one of the reasons why God was also sending these men to go and spy out the land was because God wanted to bolster their confidence in the promises of God. He wanted to strengthen the people's faith in God's purposes. And so what we read in verse 3 is that Moses, he heeds God's instructions. He takes 12 men, each from, one from each tribe, and then he sends them out into the promised land. And if you just jump down to verse 17, there you see that Moses gives them instruction of what they're to do. They're to go up into the Negev. They're to go up into the hill country. And Moses gives them then a series of questions that he wants the answers to. I want you to go and find out, what's the land like? Go find out, what's the morale of the people like? Go find out, what sort of homes do they live in? Are they in camps or are they in settlements? And go find out, what's they all like? And, and are there trees? And, and, and be of good courage and bring back fruit. Now as we read through Moses' questions, I think we're supposed to hear the, the sense of excitement. Like, they are on the cusp of entering the promised land. Everyone's really intrigued. What's it going to be like, this land that God has said is flowing with milk and honey? They're so nearly there. And so Moses is desperate. Come back with a report that will encourage us and strengthen us and bolster us. And so armed with these questions, off off these spies set off on their fact-finding mission. Now, in in verses 21 through 25, we we get their movements. For 40 days, these men, they they entered into the promised land from the southern border, and then they journeyed northward up into the hill country of the Negev. In verse 22, we're told something. They spent most of their time in a place called Hebron. If you're a diligent student of the Bible, that should pop up and say, "I, I know Hebron. Hebron's spoken about in in Genesis. Hebron's where all the patriarchs were buried. These men who are to go into the promised land, they they go to this place, they spend a great deal of time there in Hebron, and no doubt that was a place that could easily have bolstered their faith. God had said to them, he's given them the land, and he had initially made this promise to the patriarchs. You know, just, just as an aside, if you want to grow in your faith, you want to strengthen your faith, You and I have got to develop practices, disciplines that will aid that end. So so I don't know what you do to to strengthen or bolster your faith, but let me me share a few practices that you could do. In their case, they went back to a place that meant a lot in their history. In our case, we, we can journal. We can write down every day our prayer requests, what God's saying in his word, what God's doing in our life, and then Months later, we can return and see how God's answered our prayer, how we've grown. Or, 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 I don't know for you, but I know for me, one of the ways that if I want to strengthen my faith, it's not just when I read the word, it's also when I sing the word. There's nothing better to strengthen one's faith than to sing God's word back to him and ask for God to help us. Some of you, um, you know, you might have a glorious conversion story. A good discipline can be go back to the place where you were first converted and remind yourself of what you were like before you were called. And then look at what God has done in your life. 
So the first thing we see is for 40 days, the men went and spied out the land, verses 1 through 25. As we pick up things in verse 26, we now have the two reports and the responses. Now, I was indulging myself in a little bit of speculation in the study this week. You know, God's people are waiting, no doubt, eagerly for Christ to return. They can't wait to hear what the promised land was like. And so can you imagine the look on their faces when they saw two of the spies coming, carrying on a pole, a gigantic cluster of grapes with pomegranates and figs. They would have been licking their lips at their mouth-watering, delicious food on display. They would have been so excited and thrilled at the prospect that their future homeland offered them more than they could have ever asked or dreamed of. Just, just think about it. God's people had been a nomadic people after they'd left Egypt, wandering in the desert on a daily diet of manna and quail. Now the spies come back and they say, here's, here's, here's what's going to be your future diet. I don't know if you know this, but in the ancient world, grapes, grapes represented fruitfulness, permanence, productivity. Grapes represented joy. Literally, there was no greater treasure for these spies to bring back than grapes. Grapes represented hope. And, and here they were. And then you've got the, the, the men standing up and saying in verse 27, the land is just as we've been told. The land flows with milk and honey and this is the fruit. You can imagine the people dancing and screaming with joy. Now, now, up until this part, so far, so good. I suspect some of God's people who are standing on, watching on, listening on, they're finding their strength, their faith rising, their excitement increasing, their anticipation of what lies ahead of them deepening. But here comes the first unexpected twist. In fact, here comes the turning point of this story. What was, what started as an encouraging report descends into a discouraging report. I should point out that there are two reports in this section. There is what I want to call the majority report from the ten spies, and then there is the minority report from the two spies, Joshua and Caleb. So let's focus, first of all, on the majority report. You know, in many ways, you kind of wish that they'd stopped in verse 27. But when they pick things up in verse 28, that dreaded word comes, however... The people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. You know, it is an absolute disaster, spiritually speaking, when you put a but or however and you lay it against one of the promises of God. Some of you know the, 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 the retired Northern Irish Reformed Presbyterian Minister, Ted Donnelly. Well, in this passage, he once remarked, how many spiritual undertakings have been murdered by that word, however. 
However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. Their cities are fortified. Jump down to verse 31. We're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Then in verse 32, halfway through, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that it devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of a great eye. And there we saw the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. One minute they're extolling and regaling the people with just how the land is flowing with milk and honey. It's filled with fruit. The next minute they're saying, well, hold on a minute, guys. Um, the land is filled with people who are strong and mighty. It's interesting. In, in verse 32, it's called a bad report that they give. It's bad for two reasons. Bad because of the consequences of what they say. It now sows the seeds of both doubt and rebellion in the hearts and minds of God's people. And it's bad because it's very clear that these spies who gave the majority report started lying. Started twisting the truth. Exaggerating the facts. Look at what they say. They say the land devours its inhabitants. Meaning the land is not conducive to thriving and flourishing. Well, what a, what, what a lie because the people who live there, that they've got all the fruit of the world, they're strong, they're tall. Then they start playing on the fact that the, the, the people who live there, they're of such a great height. You know, when I was thinking about this, you think of the, the Maasai tribe in somewhere like Kenya, you know, people who are, who are just born really tall. Now, it's true. We know from history, the Amalekites were known to be quite tall. But these ten spies start to indulge in hyperbole. They say, there we saw the Nephilim. Now, if you know the Nephilim, Genesis chapter 6, they were the, the great men of renown, the great giants, the fearsome warriors. These men weren't Nephilim that they saw. And then just to really up the ante, they say, and we seemed like grasshoppers. Now, just so you, you get the point that they're saying there is, in the ancient world, the smallest edible food was a grasshopper. And so what they're saying is, in comparison to these people in the land, like, we're, we're not even a main meal. We're just going to be a snack. They're going to chew us up and spit us out. Now, even if there was a grain of truth to their report, and, 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 and perhaps there was a tiny bit, their report was a disaster. And it's staring, in us, it's staring us in the face. Do you see what's wrong with their report? They don't mention God. The people, the ten spies, have gone into the land and they have totally and utterly forgotten God. Even if what they claimed was true, what of it? God had just delivered them from slavery and bondage in Egypt. God had just destroyed the superpower of the ancient world in the Red Sea. And now, here are in spies and they find themselves intimidated by a, a nation filled with slightly tall people. They'd gone into this land and their purpose was to come back with facts and evidence that would bolster and strengthen the faith of God's people. But they come back with a report that ultimately leads the people into rebellion. This is a tragedy of epic proportions. You know, in response to this report, 
God's people do what they do best. See what they do? We read that they started grumbling and complaining. And if you've read through the story of God's people following the exodus from Egypt, this this is becoming a pattern. And, and, and Christian, can I say this? If, if you're someone who's prone to grumble and complain a lot, it's just a symptom of a much deeper issue. And here's your deeper issue. You have lost sight of God. You've taken your eyes off him, you've forgotten his word, and you've put all your focus, and you're now fixating on your problems and your inadequacies. It's fascinating when you see these ten spies in this report, it's filled with the fear of man. I don't know, many of us as Christians, that's what we struggle with. We struggle with the fear of man. We we, we so deeply care about other people's opinions of ourselves. Do you know why you and I struggle with the fear of man? Answer, because we don't fear God. Because we've lost sight of who he is. In all his glory. and all of his greatness. Now you want to see the people's response? It gets worse. We, we see it in high definition. Beginning in chapter 14. Appalled by the spies' description of the promised land. They, the people completely break down. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we died in the wilderness? Why is this? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Or our, our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let's choose a leader. And let's go back to Egypt. Now again, if, if you're familiar with the story of God's people after they left Egypt, this isn't the first time they've said this sort of thing. They're always forgetting who God is. They're always forgetting what God has done. They're always putting rose-tinted spectacles back on and saying, let's go back to Egypt. Now, honestly, you need to just pause and ponder that for a minute. What they say here is completely irrational. I read an illustration, and it's very provocative provoking what the people of God say in in this paragraph is the equivalent of someone who lived in Nazi Germany concentration camp being set free and liberated and then saying I want to go back I want to go back and live under Hitler completely completely irrational God's just saved them from their slavery and bondage in Egypt where their backs were been broken. He's delivered them. He's given them the law. He's provided for them. He's protected them. He's given them water and he's given them food from heaven. And now he's got them right on the edge of the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. And instead of saying, now let's go forwards in faith, these guys start saying, you know what? Let's go backwards. It would be better for us to go back into slavery in Egypt. And and worse than that, notice what they do, right? They start attributing evil to God. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword? God's plans and purposes? He's going to kill us. The Canaanites are going to kill us. And our wives and our little ones, well, they're going to become prey. what What a tragedy. 
But I wonder, with Judgment Day honesty, have you ever entertained the thought? Maybe I should just go back to living my old life. You know, the Christian life is it's tiring, it's hard. Have you ever entertained the thought, maybe it would be better for me to go back to my old life and not to go forward in this new life that God has given me? Because if you have, you can totally relate to God's people here. But what they do is scandalous. They, they spurn God's salvation. They want to reverse the exodus. They want to overthrow the leadership. And in verse 10, we're told it's so bad that they even want to stone Joshua and Caleb. These men who bring the minority report and they cannot stand it. But let's just very quickly look at the minority report. If you look at verse 30 of chapter 13, here's Caleb's words. He says to the people, let us go up at once and occupy it for we are able to overcome it. Now, if you know God's promise given to us, reiterated all the way through the book of Exodus, you'll know that in chapter 3, God has said to his people, you are going to go and you are going to occupy the land. And so when Caleb speaks to the people here, he, he pulls on that language and he, he reminds the people of the promise that God had made to them. He says, let's go. Let's occupy the land that God is giving us. And you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to be faithful to the purpose of, for which he was sent into the promised land. He was trying to rekindle and bolster the faith of God's people. And then if you jump across to chapter 14 and look at verses 6 through 9... Joshua and Caleb, who were among those who spied out the land, they tore their clothes. They said to all the congregation of the people, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. Now, there you go. The majority report stated the land will devour you. Here's the minority report. We saw the exact same sights. We saw the exact same things. The land to which God is giving us is exceedingly good. And then notice... Caleb and Joshua say, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. And it flows with milk and only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Now, if you've heard what the people said, you know, they've just said, we're like grasshoppers. Like we're like this small, tiny food that could just be spat out. Well, Caleb and Joshua said, well, you know, these people, we don't need to fear them. They'll be like lunch for us. Bread. They're up for the take and their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Here's what makes the difference between the majority report and the minority report. In the minority report, they do not leave God out of the equation. In fact, it's, it's fascinating. You know where the but is placed in their report? Not but and the people are strong and we're afraid. But if the Lord delights in us, He'll give us this land. There's the but. If God delights in us, if we seek to live in faith and obedience to him, he will give us what he has said he is giving us. You want to know one of the, the motivations for all of our lives should be we, we should seek to live lives that please God. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. 
We should be so delighted with who God is that we seek to delight him in all that we do. And that's Caleb and Joshua here. And you know what I love about Caleb and Joshua is that they don't have a fear of man problem. They're freed from the fear of man. And it's because their eyes are wide open to God. And they know that God's presence goes with them. And they think God's power. And they trust in God's protection. This passage continues to ask us, will, will, will we go forward in faith or backward in unbelief? Well, if you listen to Joshua and Caleb, you would go forward in faith. But tragically, their words fall in deaf ears. And so we come to the final point, and very briefly, we have the intercession of Moses and the judgment of God. Do you know the tragedy of this story? The entire nation of Israel choose suicide in the wilderness over going forward into the promised land. It truly is a tragedy of epic proportions. It's so, so tragic it was engraved in the consciences and the minds of God's people for every generation after that that they kept on saying, let's never be like the rebellious generation. Now, what, what I want you to notice here is that in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 14, God says that he's going to execute his judgment on the people. He's going to wipe them out. He's going to start again with Moses. And, 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 and you know the reason God says that is because sin is so grievous to God. It is a holy affront to say to God, I do not believe you. I'm rejecting your promises. Even you have experienced my salvation. It's to mock God. It's to trample on all that he's done for us. Now, just as God says he's going to execute his judgment, notice that the wonderful servant of the Lord Moses steps forward. And he engages in intercessory prayer. Now, I've got so many notes in this chapter that this is one of the sections I got down. I was like, man, I wish I was preaching a sermon just on this prayer. Like, get this right. The intersection of God's eternal sovereign will and our prayers of intercession is a profound mystery. Ian Duguid puts it like this. The best theological minds through the ages have had difficulty in expressing how a sovereign, eternal God can listen and respond to the prayers of temporary human beings while still carrying out all of his holy will exactly as he designed it from all eternity. (laughs) We're going to be engaged in the business of intercessory prayer on Wednesday evenings. If you want to learn how to pray, a good place to study is this passage. And in Moses' prayer before the Lord, just very quickly appeals to two things. The glory of God and the mercy of God. God, it's because of your fame among the nations. Do not, do not strike this people down dead right now. And God, it's because of the mercy of your character. You're the God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity. Have mercy upon your people. And here's the glorious thing. God hears his servant and he answers the prayer and judgment is mitigated. The impending disaster and destruction on the people, at least for 40 years, is is, is prevented. And you know what we have here? We cannot miss this. We have the prefiguring of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus come into this world to do? To avert the wrath of God from his people. But 
But, you know, when we're, we're, we're thinking of Moses as this mediator between God and his people, you and I got to know this, right? Moses himself did not get to enter the promised land because he himself disobeyed God. The writer of Hebrews would tell us that in Jesus Christ, we have a better and far greater mediator, Jesus Christ, who is without sin. And you know what he does? He both secures our inheritance and he is able to give us freedom from our guilt because he, Jesus, fell in the wilderness on the hill of Calvary. He took in his body the punishment for our sins. And it's truly amazing and outstanding. In verse 20, the Lord says, in light of Moses' prayer, I pardon my people. Don't miss this, right? God is so just. God is also so gracious. But there's one thing, just as we're bringing this to an end, we must never take lightly the judgment of God. Your sin and my sin always has consequences. And and we've been studying this in Romans chapter 1. When God acts in judgment, one of the things he often does is he gives us over to our sin. Now, do you remember what the people said they wanted? They said this, we want to die in the wilderness. They said this, we want to go back to Egypt. Well, look at verse 32. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. They said they want to go back to Egypt. Look at verse 25. Turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. God says, instead of going forward in faith, okay, you'll have what you want. You'll go backward. You'll go back towards Egypt. And this stands as a sober warning to all of us. Be careful. Be very careful what you want. And what you give voice to in your grumbling and your complaining. You don't want God to run your life? Well, he might just give you that. He may just leave you to running your own life. You want death in the wilderness? Well, what does God give his people? A death sentence. As we, as we draw this to a conclusion, what is the application? Well, this is one of the few passages where the New Testament tells us how this passage is to be applied in Roman. In Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Here's the application of this passage. God says to us, trust me. Trust my promises. Trust my work of salvation. Trust my faithfulness, my proven track record. Look to me, look to my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, 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 the better mediator of the new covenant. Find salvation in him who died in the wilderness for our sin and disobedience. But do not harden your hearts. Christian, don't go backward. Go forward. I don't know, maybe there's some of you here and, and, and you're kind of wavering between 
am I going to go on in this Christian life? Or am I just going to go backward to my old life? Maybe there's some of you here and you don't even know that's what you're struggling with. You know, you get so many Christians, right? And, and, and myself included, and we, we can live a Christian life that is deeply unhappy and deeply unsatisfying. And one of the real reasons for that is because when God says, come, trust me, follow me, fix your gaze upon me, walk in my ways, obey me, we choose not to live in the fullness of God's blessing. We choose to be saved, stuck, and satisfied with a shallow Christian life. And so we waver. And so, brothers and sisters, here's, here's the call of this passage. Listen to God's fresh invitation. He calls us to come, to come to his son, who's secured our future inheritance, who's taken and pardoned our sin, and who wants us to live in the fullness of his blessing in the here and now and then forevermore. As we respond to this passage, let's just bow our heads. Let's respond to what God is saying to us. That you would keep us from looking back, from turning back, from hard-hearted and unbelieving hearts. Our Father, we pray that you would keep us from grumbling and complaining. Our Father, we pray that you'd keep us from fearing man instead of fearing you. Our Father, we pray that you would help us to fix our gaze on your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and corrector of our faith, the one who stood in our place, took our sin in himself so that we could be forgiven. And the one who sits at your right hand and now ever lives to intercede in our behalf. Father, we pray that as we go into this week, we would go forward in faith. We would go forward trusting in your word and in your promises. We pray that we would do as much as we can do so that we will bolster and strengthen our confidence in you and in what you have done. Lord, you have done so much in our lives. And so often we are just like the people of old. We forget. We close off our ears. We harden our hearts. And God, we would pray that as a church family, as it's still called today, that we would encourage one another. That we would build one another up. That we would do all that we can do so that we might not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But might enjoy the reality of living for you and living out your purposes. Father, as we go into this new week, we pray that we would be, we would live lives not marked by lukewarm, half-hearted Christianity, but we would live lives bolstered by the fact that we can look back to what you've done in your son for us. We can look forward with the promise that you're taking us into the new creation where there will be no more sin, suffering, death, or hell for us. And we can live in light of those two realities with a living hope here in the present. God, we pray that we would go forward in faith and not backward in unbelief. For we ask this for your glory's sake 
and because you're a God of steadfast and unfailing love. In Jesus' name, amen.